Hello, and welcome to our Asian American Studies 121 podcast, The Evolution of Chinese Restaurants in America. My name is Stephanie. I'm a first year intending computer science major. My name is Catherine. I'm a second year data science major. My name is Lucero. I'm a fourth year art history major. And I'm Annie, and I am a third year molecular cell biology major. In this podcast, we will explore the evolution of Chinese restaurants in America, from the original Cantonese chop suey houses to the diverse array of Chinese restaurants seen today. Through interviewing Dr. Raymond Chong and hearing about his family's restaurant, the Far East Cafe, we learn about the formation of many original chop suey houses, their roles in the community, and their eventual decline. Supplementing that perspective, we also interviewed Steve Wong to learn about the Chinese restaurants today and how they are currently being impacted by the pandemic. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to start off with some historical background. Political and economic conditions overseas brought about a large amount of Chinese immigration to the U.S. in the 19th century. Upon arrival, Chinese laborers were faced with anti-Chinese and anti-immigration sentiments from the white laborers who started accusing them of taking away jobs. This brought about a divide in Chinese immigration support. Meanwhile, white laborers opposed immigration. Traders, industrialists, and railroad companies were pro-immigration due to the profitable cheap labor it would provide. The growing fear by white Americans that Chinese labor threatened their economic freedom eventually led to disenfranchisement in the form of exclusion. This leads us to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which prohibited the immigration of Chinese laborers in an effort to minimize the presence of Chinese people working in the U.S. By obtaining merchant status, however, Chinese workers could still enter the country, and this was possible by opening a store, a laundry business, or a restaurant. The result is an increase in Chinese restaurants opening up in Chinatown communities throughout California and eventually the rest of the country. As part of our podcast, we now have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Raymond Douglas Chong, a sixth-generation American-born Chinese writer, poet, and film producer from Los Angeles, California. His research and writing centers around the Chinese-American experience, as well as the history of chop suey restaurants in the United States. He is the author of The Far East Cafe, A Proud Legacy in Little Tokyo, Far East Cafe in China Meshi, and Kubla Khan, A Chinatown Gateway. Dr. Chung has also written an ASM News article titled Why Chop Suey Became an Important Part of the Chinese American Experience, in which he talks about his grandfather Moi Chung's history of coming to the United States. These readings and more can be found in the collection of his work at ChineseLovePoetry.com. Dr. Chung, thank you again for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure to join you all um, this Saturday afternoon. All right. Um, I'll start off with the first question. What was America like when your grandfather first immigrated and began working in the res restaurant industry? And how did working in that industry affect how he settled in America? My grandfather, Moi Chung, arrived in 1912. And that was at the time of the founding of the Republic of China. At that, at that time in 1912, he arrived on Angel Island Immigration Station. And for him, luckily, he had a student visa so he immediately went into San Francisco Chinatown and he started studying American English and then worked at a dry goods store on Grand Avenue in the heart of San Francisco Chinatown at that time. 
From 1917 to 1936, he moved on to, from San Francisco Chinatown to the East Coast, to eventually Boston Chinatown and Central Square in Cambridge. And he got involved in this industry called chop suey houses or restaurants. So that was how he was at coming to America from 1912 moving forward up through 1936. He was a merchant in dry goods store, but also a owner of chop suey restaurants in the East Coast in Boston and in Cambridge. Yeah, so um, so how did that, how did working in that or participating in the industry um, affect how he settled? Do you think it, it kind of eased his transition or? In this case, chop suey catered not just for the Chinese clientele, but also to the American white clientele. So I gave him an opportunity not just to deal with Chinese, but to deal on a daily basis, his customers, his suppliers, who were, were American white and had dialogue, established friendships, understanding, business relationship. So it was a good opportunity to break out of that shell. If he had stayed in the inner heart of Chinatown, San Francisco, he would have been very isolated, very insular, but being in Boston, being more attached to the Anglo population, he had had more opportunity to deal with them on a regular basis. So that was an advantage for him to get into the chop suey business at that time. So further following your family's story, um, in the 1930s, America experienced a severe economic downturn. After coming to the U.S., many Chinese immigrants had limited job opportunities. Because of their ethnic background, many only had access to secondary labor market jobs. These included laundries, groceries, domestic housework, and of course, restaurants. Then, from 1929 to 1939, the Great Depression hit America. Initially, the Chinese-American community remained fairly insulated from labor competition due to the nature of their jobs. However, with time, many in the Chinese-American community fell victim to the severe financial burden, resulting in the closures of several small businesses. So how did the Great Depression affect your family's position in America and their involvement in the restaurant industry? By that time, 1929 to 1936, Mo Chung, my grandfather, had and owned Imperial Restaurant at Two Cents Square in Cambridge. And business was fairly good up to that point, 1929, when, when the Great Depression hit. He was in the, in the heart of Cambridge between Harvard University and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So his, his clientele were very rich at that time up to 1929, but then slowly and gradually business decline, and ultimately he had to sell his interests in 1936. So from that point, he decided to go greener pastures um, and left the Union Station from Boston to Chicago to Los Angeles, to the Los Angeles Union Station. And he and my father, uh, Jim Soi Chong, they went to a cousin's restaurant called Yek Kong Lo on East 1st Street in the heart of Little Tokyo, Nihimichi, or Nihimachi. They were cousins from a village in a place called Hoi Ping. 
So because of his connection, family roots, family ties, he was able to bounce back to another restaurant, Yukon Lo. But in his case, he became more of a waiter, a worker bee, instead of an owner. So that was the biggest drastic letdown for him, a downturn of his economics path of the American dream. One time he was the owner, but now he's just a worker. So that for him was a, a severe downturn or reversal in his life for my grandfather. Right. Um, so on to the next question. In yeah. what ways have Chinese restaurants experienced success and hardships over time in America? Looking back in American history, of course, the sojourners, the pioneers, the Chinese, the early Chinese, came right after the California Girl Rush around 1849 into the Sacramento Valley, into the Los um, the, um, the, the, the um, see what's that river, the American River, and, and the foothills of Sierra Nevada. And from there, they, they continue on to the Transcontinental Railroad from 1865 to 1869. And across, of course, they brought their cuisine. Most of the ch- early Chinese pioneers and sojourners were from a place called uh, Seyap region of Guangdong province. And the, the cuisine was Cantonese. In my mind, Cantonese is the best Chinese cuisine anywhere among every uh, other seven Chinese cuisines in, in, in China. So what happened between roughly 1849 to 1965, chop suey was the dominant well-known American Chinese cuisine. And you could say chop suey is not what we call authentic Cantonese. It was more of your whitewash Chinese food to satisfy both the Chinese but principally the American white clientele. So chop suey was a, a transformation of the classic Cantonese cuisine and gradually over time, hey, we gotta survive as a business and we gotta have customers who are American whites and it became chop suey in terms of taste, in terms of presentation, in terms of color. So it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a transition and it, and it became known as chop suey. And the first mention of chop suey was in 1884 when a gentleman named Wang Ching Fu, a Mandarin, in a newspaper talked about what chop suey was at that time. Little pieces of dishes of meats, vegetables mixed in together in a sauce. And he was the first known written representation of what is now known as chop suey in 1884. And the reason why chop suey became a big way of surviving as a business in America was was the Chinese Exclusion Act. It forced Chinese not just to become laborers because laborers were excluded to immigrate to America in 1882. In order to become, to find a way to, to travel back and from America to China and back, and to bring your family, you had to be a merchant, a merchant class. And the easiest path to be a merchant was the classic old story, laundries, stores, and restaurants, which means chop suey. And I'll give you a big picture. In 1940, in Little Tokyo, Los Angeles, there were 10 
chop suey cafes. They're all gone now. But in 1940, there were 10 chop suey cafes. Fast forward in 1965, in New Chinatown, Los Angeles, there were 31 chop suey cafes. And that was before the onset of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, where it it ended the quotas against the Chinese and brought more other Chinese in beyond chop suey. It became Sichuan, Hunan, Hanwan, all the other cuisines. But up to 1965, that was the, 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 the pinnacle of chop suey in America up to 1965. Yeah, so you mentioned that the, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act presented restaurants as a, as a fairly straightforward pathway to obtaining a merchant status. Do you think that the Chinese Exclusion Act and also the general sentiments of Chinese exclusion um, have had hurt the Chinese restaurants in any way? Actually encourage it. It created a, a boom business, a provided incentive for the laborers at that point, up to 1882, to invest and follow and pursue the American dream in a more sustainable way. But it was under the ugliness of the Chinese Inclusion Act. You could not be naturalized. It was difficult to bring your woman, your family to America. That was a, that was a called a devil's bargain. You can still stay here, but you can't bring your wife. You can't bring your family. You can't be naturalized. So that was the ugly stigma of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which happened to my family too, directly. So, um, so you mentioned earlier that your family, um, your grandfather and your father, moved to uh, Los Angeles, uh, which is also. Uh, the location of the Far East Cafe. Um, so how is the Far East Cafe unique in its position as a Chinese restaurant in a Japanese American community? The Far East Cafe or Intonlo on East First Street in Little Tokyo in the heart of the Nihimachi Nikkei community near the city hall was run by my family, my, my, my relatives from Hoi Ping from 1935 to 1994, up to the LA earthquake at that time. And it was a unique gathering place for the Nikki community where you have the Chinese serving their version of chop suey, which was more China Mishi, C-H-I-N-A-M-E-S-H-I. Again, it's, it's a, one of a kind of transformation to meet the palate of your customers. Where I mentioned chop suey was for the American white. Well, chop suey morphed into China Mishi to accommodate the Nikkei community taste. So that was, that was one part of it. But the unique part was it was a gathering place, the Forest Cafe from 1935 to 1994 for funerals, for parties, for birthdays, for weddings. It was a place to have shared experiences, uh, camaraderie, to drink, to socialize. And especially during, after World War II, from 1942 to 1945, the Nikkei community were interned in the concentration camps all across the American West. The story told by me, by many of the Nikkei pioneers, the Issei, Nisei, Sunsei, after World War II, American whites did not want to deal 
with the Japanese. They were the hated enemy. They did not give any refuge. They did not share food places. The Far East Cafe was a place that they could eat and stay. The, the Jung family in particular opened their heart to the Nikkei community. And because of that moment at that time, after 1945, the Far East Cafe became a, a beloved institution. So it was a special synergy, a special memories, because it was a trying time for the Nikkei community in particular. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we, we have already kind of discussed the transformation of Chinese food, as, um, especially from traditional Cantonese food to then the transformation into chop suey. Um, but kind of continuing to look at that transformation, um, overall, how is today's Chinese food in America different or similar to Chinese food in China? Um, and how has Chinese food changed over time in America? What I say now, up to 1965, it was typical chop suey all across America. Every downtown, every major city, any downtown, any town, you always have, you would always have a chop suey cafe with their iconic neon signs says chop suey. But the turning point in terms of the Chinese cuisine in America was, as I mentioned previously, was the 1965. Immigration Nationality Act, where it opened up America to other types of Chinese. And it introduced the other seven cuisine, the Anwei, Sichuan, Hunan, Zhenjing, Fujin, Jiangsu, Shandong. So now in America, you have a stew of Chinese cuisine. There is no one size, one taste that fits right now. So it's all brought broadened. The, the, the Chinese cuisine experience. It's in a way also been kind of whitewashed and not really purely Shandong, but it, it has to meet the, the American uh, taste for Chinese food. But now it's, it's richer, it's more broader, it has more context of appreciation of what Chinese culture is. Before, before 1965, all I knew was chop suey myself. And to me, that was Chinese food. What else could it be? As Dr. Chong mentioned, 1965 served as a turning point for the chop suey industry. The 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act abolished discrimination against Asians and other non-Europeans entering America. As a result, many Chinese immigrants came from their homelands, nearly doubling the Chinese population in America. The presence began to shine through after years of foul treatment. Chinese fashion, youth culture, and restaurants became more prominent. More authentic Chinese cuisines were introduced, and as time went on, Chinese Americans began to play a larger and larger role in American society. All right. Um, so going back to what you mentioned earlier about how Chinese Exclusion Act um, encouraged chop suey houses and cafes as they were one of the few opportunities for merchant work in America for Chinese immigrants alongside laundries and stores. Um, so reporter Jennifer A. Lee had a TED talk titled The Hunt for General So where she talks about tracing back the origins of well-known Chinese American dishes such as chop suey. Uh, she mentions that chop suey was invented as a coping mechanism in response to the Chinese Exclusion Act. So what do you think of this claim and would you agree or disagree with her? My thought is that is bullshit. 
it was not because of the tragedy of Shinlak. It was the, the initial arrival of the, of the early Chinese, the pioneer sojourners after the California Gold Rush and so forth to the Transcontinental Railroad that morphed into the, the Cantonese dishes being transformed into chop suey. But on the other side, it was a Chinese Exclusion Act that encouraged a, a high number of Chinese who were laborers before to become merchants. It was their incentive. It was a ticket to survive in America. At the same time, they had to face the anti-Chinese sentiment, the hatred in the media, in the streets, the taunts, the teases, the hurts, the killings, the massacres. So it was a refuge from the, the hard labor to become, in a way, following the American dream in, in a better setting. And a restaurant, in my mind, is better than working in a laundry. A laundry is monotonous, dreary work, uh, limited opportunity. And that was some of my own relatives were in the laundry business too. But in a way, the laundry was a little bit better. It was a slight step up. I said, very slight step up. Because again, the Chinese were being harassed, being discriminated. They were not considered American. They were considered professional foreigners. But for the Chinese, for the pioneers and soldiers, it, it gave them a chance to make money and send that back, back to the homeland, to Hoi Ping, to the Sayup region of their families. Yes, yeah, so kind of going along with that, um, and especially, um, I think the points you've brought up about how the Chinese Exclusion Act actually kind of helped boom the restaurant business, but then there's also the anti-Asian sentiment that also went along with that time period. Yes. So even today, uh, we are seeing that anti-Asian sentiment um, and seeing the effects on, on Chinese um, American businesses and other Asian American businesses. Um, so taking that into account, um, what do you hope that listeners will take away from hearing about your family's story? And as we begin to see future generations start their work in the Asian American community with this understanding, um, what do you hope to see from these future generations? What I can say now, in particular, chop suey, the Cantonese cuisine. And for us here is, is a takeaway that there was a legacy from 1849 to 1965 of the golden age of the chop houses. It was the time where it was rich, enriched our culture in America, Chinese to the Americans. It gave us a different view, a different telescope into the mysterious exotic world of the Far East China. And bear in mind, Chinese food is not P.F. Chang, not Panda Express, not Peiwei. That is whitewash for the American palate. But critically, looking back, chop suey was the foundation of our now pan-Chinese cuisine, the eight cuisines from China to America. So chop suey has an important legacy to remember and to, to appreciate now in 2021. So kind of going along with that too. Um, so what would you encourage young people to do, right? To, to, to research this, right? Um, as you said, chop suey restaurants are, are um, seen a lot less nowadays. Um, 
I remember seeing Far East Cafe when I was a young girl, but but now it has turned into a far bar in Little Tokyo. Um, a pseudo Canadian funky place to be for drinking, mostly. Yes. Um, so, so what would you encourage young people to do to to preserve this history? You must admit, the restaurant business is tough. It's hard, and it's very difficult for the parents, the owners of that legacy restaurant to go, hey, say, hey, son, hey, daughter, let's continue that business. The son and daughter has a higher path to follow that American dream to become professional, become doctors, engineers, lawyers. So there's a hard incentive to continue the chop suey business. Unless you're an entrepreneur of an idea to bring a retro age look at the chop suey, that could be a business opportunity somewhere in America to bring that error of the drinking, the dancing, the smoking, the cuisine, the, the floor shows at the nightclubs during that golden age of the Chinese nightclub in San Francisco, Chinatown. So this might be an opportunity if somebody's what are called bright and creative to bring that or to bring it back to Shanghai, to, to the to the Boon district and, and have an enterprise. But it's very difficult. It's challenging. It is the legacy is being lost in terms of the menu, the cooks, how to cook it, get the ingredients. Day by day, bits of it's getting lost over time. So it's hard to keep it authentic feeling. What, what is authentic chop suey? Okay, so, well, on that final important inspiring note, um, we will conclude this wonderful interview uh, with Dr. Chong. Thank you so much, Dr. Chong, for sharing your knowledge of Chinese restaurants in America and your family story with us today. Chop suey was a thriving industry throughout history. However, current events have shifted circumstances for Chinese restaurants today. Amidst the rise of both political and social turmoil during the pandemic, Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans have begun to be disproportionately discriminated against. Beginning from the labeling of the virus as the Kung flu to seemingly random attacks on the elderly throughout the Asian community, Chinese Americans as well as other Asian Americans have come to be targets of various hate crimes across the entire AAPI community. However, growing support has allowed for appropriate safety measures to be spread and shared, pushing for a resurgence in peace against hate and an increase in empowerment for the entire Asian American community. We now have the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Steve Wong, an OG Bay Area leader in the Chinese American community. Chinese born and raised in San Francisco, Mr. Wong studied at UC Berkeley for his undergraduate, and during this time he participated in the Third World Liberation Front strikes. Upon graduating, he began his work in the communities of Chinatown and Manila Town in San Francisco. He has worked in family restaurants, several bookstores, and then in railroads, and is now retired. Mr. Wong comes from a family of Chinese restaurant owners and workers in the restaurant trade for generations, with his great uncle being the first to establish a restaurant. After World War II, his family moved from San Francisco to the Bay Area and established a family restaurant in Oakland near the Emeryville border. This restaurant ran all the way from 1948 to the 70s. His father and his cousin have also opened restaurants in both Sacramento and San Francisco, in which he worked for some time. Steve Wong was raised in the Chinese restaurant scene and is now very familiar with the environment as well as the industry. All right, Mr. Steve Wong, thank you again for joining us today. Um, okay, I'm going to start off with the first question. 
So coming from a family of restaurant owners and growing up in that environment, in your perspective, what keeps people coming back to Chinese restaurants and the Chinese cuisine over the years, over time? Well, I think it, it, there's a little bit of historical precedence here in that a lot of the first restaurants that were opening up in the United States from the late 1800s to the early 1900s were Chinese restaurants. And this precedes a lot of, you know, what we currently understand as the restaurant scene or going out to eat kind of thing. And, but the Chinese had a type of food that a lot of people were not familiar with. And it included things like, you know, chop suey, chow mein, egg roll, uh, things of that sort that people were totally unfamiliar with. And so a lot of people were curious about these types of restaurants. And after a while, uh, chop suey became a very uh, special kind of like cuisine, you might say, even though today a lot of people say that it's not authentic Chinese food, but in reality it actually is because who created the food? But the Chinese, be it that they were Chinese Americans. But Chinese were relegated to things like the restaurants, laundries, and low-paying, uh, low-wage kind of like jobs because they were, you know, uh, they weren't allowed to work in other areas like manufacturing and things of that sort. So one of the ways to make, you know, finances was to open up a Chinese restaurant uh, wherever you can. And so that was the start of a, a lot of Chinese restaurants throughout the United States. It probably started on the east and west coast, in particular San Francisco, New York, and then probably spread from there to other parts of the country, from there to the southern part, to the Midwest and whatnot. And, uh, and it grew from there, where uh, and in some places, um, a lot of them were like Chinese-American restaurants. They weren't just solely Chinese food. They also served American uh, meals. And so a lot of times in certain areas, they were the only restaurant that existed that people could go to uh, to get a meal. But also it was very inexpensive. So a lot of people went to these restaurants because they were very inexpensive. And so like for instance, well, of course things have changed tremendously since, and like today, for instance, in Hayward where I live, the vast majority of people who go to Chinese restaurants are Hispanic Americans. And uh, I mean, there's a whole history behind that as well, but they are like almost like the main support for a lot of Chinese restaurants here in Hayward. And without them, a lot of these Chinese restaurants wouldn't able to be able to survive. And, um, but a lot of it is because it's inexpensive. A lot of it is because it's a very different type of food, especially it uses different types of ingredients that like a lot of Western and non-Chinese are not familiar with. So there's a certain attraction for that kind of taste. So anyway, a lot of people keep going back to these restaurants because one, they're really inexpensive, basically compared to other types of restaurants. And 
because uh, in the early beginnings, which I said earlier, a lot of the restaurants had uh, Chinese and American, you know, menus. And so you can get like a hamburger or a steak for a very inexpensive price compared to like other restaurants, which charge a much higher price for the product that they produce there. And so uh, a lot of people went to the restaurants for that reason. And interestingly enough, like in Canada, for instance, there's a, there's a lot of Chinese restaurants that spread throughout Canada that the restaurant in and of itself was the only dining establishment in the whole community. A lot of times there were small communities and it became the focal point actually for a lot of community affairs. And a lot of them were not even Chinese restaurants. They were just restaurants run by Chinese. And so people went there to get their you know meals because once again, it was inexpensive and oftentimes because they were the only dining establishment in the whole city or town as some of them were. So you'll have like, uh, if you compare the prices of the restaurants, Chinese food is, you know, very inexpensive compared to other types of restaurants. And according to like uh, this book called the Fortune Cookie Chronicles, well, years back, there were like over 40,000 Chinese restaurants in the United States, which is more than the number of the fast food outlets like uh, everything from McDonald's to Burger King, Wendy's combined, there were more Chinese restaurants. And so, you know, almost, well, not every time, but throughout the United States, you would have uh, many of these Chinese restaurants, which were cheaper and probably got more food. And you can get a lot of them, uh, particularly those restaurants that also serve American fare, at a much more uh, or a lot less expensive, you know, prices. So there's a long history of like the Chinese restaurant from the very early beginnings where they were some of the only, if not the first restaurant in many areas. And people have a certain taste for Chinese food in particular, like a certain fascination for like chop suey, which was very popular at one time. And it was considered the heart and soul of the Chinese restaurants. And Americans had developed a taste of that. So, but of course, things have changed tremendously since. But a lot of people keep going back because of, you know, these factors. So, like you said, that um, there have been changes um, from the time when chop suey was a very big hit all across the nation. And you mentioned also that there's been times where people didn't consider it real Chinese food, even though it was, and it is still. Um, would you say there have been changes um, in response towards Chinese cuisine, Chinese restaurants that were not so favorable? Well, one of the big, I guess you would say, arguments or uh, points of view nowadays is like, what's authentic Chinese food versus, you know, non-authentic Chinese food. And a lot of people, because in the recent period, in the last like um, few decades, you have an explosion of like Chinese restaurants that did not serve what the original Chinese restaurants were serving. The original Chinese restaurants were serving what we call Toisan Cantonese type of food, which included things like chop suey, 
chow mein and egg rolls and things of that sort. And they were basically originated here in the United States, but it has roots in the Southern Chinese areas where, because chop suey means remnants or remainders or odds and ends, that kind of thing. And so a lot of dishes that were made in the areas from Southern China there, particularly in the Toisan area, uh, chop suey was not a foreign thing. And uh, so many things were made with like, you know, bits and pieces of that combined to make a particular dish. So that type of combination came to the U.S. as well. And, uh, and those were the type of restaurants overwhelmingly, if not almost completely, that was in the U.S. And, uh, but since in the last few decades, you have like Sichuan, Northern Chinese restaurants, Kunan, uh, and Shanghai, restaurants from a lot of different areas. And a lot of people consider this the authentic Chinese cuisine. But I argue that the Cantonese restaurants or the Toisan restaurants are just as authentic as all these new, uh, what I call like, uh, I don't know if you would call them Chinese food snobs or whatever, claiming that, you know, these type of cuisines from the other parts of China is more authentic than the what they have known in the past as like, you know, Chinese restaurants that included things like, you know, chop suey, charmaine, and egg rolls, and wonton, and all that kind of stuff. So, in any case, like, yeah, things are trading tremendously, and I have to admit that the old Chinese, what they call chop suey houses, are basically gone. A lot of them don't exist anymore, and it's very difficult to find uh, those type of restaurants. And in fact, uh, I sometimes look for them because I grew up with chop suey and I love chop suey and it's hard to find. Well, I mean, I grew up with my relatives and my father's chop suey and it's hard to find restaurants that now serve that type of food. And, uh, like in Hayward here, uh, one of the last places that, uh, I used to go to from time to time, I have closed down. It was one of the original, well, I wouldn't say original, but one of the last so-called chop suey houses. In fact, I think it was called chop suey house or something along that line. And, but anyway, uh, so you now have like all these other, you know, uh, regional Chinese restaurants that a lot of people consider more authentic and uh, so that in such a way that uh, people have forgot or have forgotten like what the old Chinese restaurants are like and which was the main financial, you know, uh, outlet for a lot of families, you know, that, that were raised in and around these type of establishment and their whole future uh, it was dependent upon that from like the, the, the money that was made in these restaurants, people, families were able to send their kids to school and whatnot. 
and provide the basis for, you know, a lot of people my generation to even go to places like Berkeley, for instance. So, you know, you have, uh, but anyway, that that's kind of like where a lot of this, this, this kind of like, uh, I, I don't know if you call it a battle or a thing where, uh, there's some some kind of fighting over what is authentic or non-authentic. To me, they're all authentic. But then at the same time, things change. And even the new newer so-called authentic restaurant, they're going to go through changes. Like even things like Gong uh, Bao uh, Chicken, for instance, uh, a dish that a lot of Americans like. That was created here in the United States by someone who was running a uh, I don't know if it's a Szechuan restaurant or not, but all of a sudden that becomes part of the uh, Chinese culinary landscape. And so they're going through changes as well, as well as the the more Toysan Cantonese restaurants went through a lot of changes as they were developing. But there's still, you know, uh, a thing called Cantonese cuisine as well, which you'll find probably... In a lot of restaurants, but you're not you're not going to find as many Cantonese American kind of restaurants. So there's a lot of changes that are happening, and the changes started to happen basically. Oh, I would say in the '60s and '70s. So we've had some decades of a lot of change in the whole Chinese cuisine, you know, area. So I want to fast forward to the present day, the recent years we have seen um, the pandemic affect businesses all across the country, as well as the the rise of racism and xenophobia towards the Asian American community. Um, how have you noticed Chinese restaurants being impacted by both the COVID pandemic, but as well as this, the racism and the xenophobia that has been rising recently? Well, of course, all restaurants have been affected by COVID-19 and this pandemic. And a lot of the Chinese restaurants was affected much more deeply because they're smaller mom and pop operations. And a lot of them probably would not be able to survive. I mean, who knows? Um, don't know the percentages, but uh, when you're closed down because your income is very low anyway, and you keep your prices low, uh, a lot of them are not gonna survive. They don't have the capital to be able to be closed down for extended periods of time. And as far as I can tell, uh, even right here in Hayward, which is a little bit different, but uh, I've never been there have been able to survive by uh, takeout and deliveries. And, and a lot of them are already just takeout places. So those are gonna be able to survive. But other restaurants that don't have or hadn't converted to like, you know, deliveries and takeout, they're probably going to fall on the wayside. And uh, so it's going to be a lot of damage, I think, overall. In places like New York City, for instance, where there's a, a lot of Chinese restaurants, a lot of them are takeouts. 
it's possible that a lot of the takeout places will survive. But what happens in the whole situation with the general Chinese restaurants, it had to lay off a lot of workers. So a lot of the workers will not have jobs and who knows, they might have been able, have been able to move on to other things. We don't know that, but there's going to be a lot of unpaid, you know, uh, wage earners at this time. And if things don't start up in the next period of time, there's going to be a lot of closures. And some of that's been happening already, including when the former President Trump did this whole China flu, uh, China virus, Wuhan virus, China flu, a gong flu rather, that already started to affect a lot of the Chinese restaurants even before the pandemic hit really hard. And people have already seen like people staying away from Chinese restaurants because of that, as well as like abuse and harassment and violence against Chinese. And just recently, for instance, like even Chinese who are workers who are going to work at their particular restaurant are getting harassed and uh, in fact, uh, beaten and uh, abused in a number of different ways. And if a restaurant is able to survive the pandemic, are they gonna be able to get back the workers they had previously? Uh, are they gonna be able to reestablish like what they had before? It's probably doubtful. Um, so the future of a lot of these restaurants from Trump's, you know, race baiting and all that kind of stuff to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it's really up in the air. But I, I suspect a lot of places will close down even before uh like for instance in um chinatown here in san francisco bay area a lot of restaurants are closing down even before all this stuff happened and because chinatown is going through a lot of changes right now including like uh well one particular area that they have uh been worried about is like because of the changing demographics of the Chinese community, for instance, a lot of restaurants used to have huge dining rooms for weddings and other occasions, large occasions. And a lot of those restaurants that had those uh, amenities were closing down because the, a lot of Chinese were not coming into Chinatown to use their facilities for their special occasions. And they're not able to like, uh, maintain because a lot of the Chinese community here in the Bay Area or in San Francisco in particular no longer live in uh, in and around Chinatown and a lot of them moved out to other areas like what they call the Richmond area and a lot of those areas have you know the same facilities or something you know close to it and they're able to like have their festivities and special occasions in no kind of restaurant outside of the Chinatown area of San Francisco. So things along that line, there's a lot of changes are happening and the uh, survival rate, it's kind of up in the air. 
but I suspect a lot of restaurants will go down. All right. Um, so my final question is, um, what do you hope that listeners of this interview and podcast um, will take away from this interview? And what is something that you'd like to see more from future generations as they begin their work in their communities? Well, one is that even though a lot of restaurants won't survive, uh, and I'm talking about uh, throughout the United States, and in particular, the Chinese restaurants, there's still going to be a lot of Chinese restaurants, and they will employ a lot of newly arrived immigrants, but they're also low-wage type of jobs. They're low-wage in terms of delivery people. They're low-wage in terms of the waiters and waitresses. And previously, when we uh, were working in a Chantown community, there were attempts at unionization. There were attempts to raise the wages of a lot of restaurants. Because, for instance, uh, my cousin, who still works in a restaurant right now, uh, even though he is actually not working at the moment, but he's still a restaurant worker. He's actually a chef. And, uh, but he, he does have no work at this point in time because the, the restaurants they used to work at, uh, most of them have uh, either closed up or on temporary hiatus from like the pandemic. And so, you know, there could be a lot of, and the whole thing is that turns to the history of Chinese immigrants in this country. When you come to this country, you're going to look for work one way or another. And one of the areas that is quite plentiful in terms of, you know, or used to be quite plentiful in terms of jobs is the restaurant trade. So you're going to find a lot of immigrant laborers, you know, uh, I would say gravitate toward, but there's no choice but to go into the restaurant trade one way or another. And the amount of immigrants still coming in the country still, you know, you know, on a decent level where there's still people coming in one way or another. And so the restaurant trade is going to still have a significant impact on these newly arrived immigrants in terms of their job employment. So in that regard, there will always be things that can be done in around restaurant workers, for instance, in uh, the Chinese communities. But see, unfortunately, once again, a lot of them are like mom and pop type of outfits. They don't employ a whole lot of workers, but they do employ enough because of the sheer number of Chinese, you know, uh, restaurants or takeout places. Because like in New York, for instance, a lot of like, uh, the Chinese immigrant population there is from Fujian province and, and they're still coming in one way or another. And they are, they make up a big bulk of the Chinese uh, restaurants and the workers. And that, you know, for whatever reason, because of like, once again, you come into this country, you have very little language skills and you go and you go to jobs that like are, where you can, uh, at least have a job, even though it's low wage, low wage jobs that uh, will employ these people. But the East Coast is a little bit different in that people who actually live in New York will work as far away as Florida or up in Maine. And 
a lot of that has, you know, dried up as well because of the pandemic in terms of the, uh, the ability to work. And uh, so you're going to have a lot of unemployed Chinese workers right now who were part of the restaurant trade. So I can see, you know, in the future, organizing around those type of things can be, you know, a thing that the community can uh, center around. All right. Um, so on that note, that concludes our interview. Steve Wong, again, thank you for joining us and sharing with us your knowledge and your insight. This has been our podcast, The Evolution of Chinese Restaurants in America. Overall, we were able to learn about how Chinese restaurants originated and progressed over time in America. Most importantly, from Dr. Chong and Steve Wong, we heard about how Chinese restaurants give life to the community. They provide spaces for gatherings, their food brings about a sense of nostalgia in customers, and their legacies can be seen today in the relationships, friendships, and sense of community in Chinese American communities, Asian American communities, and beyond. We'd like to thank both Dr. Raymond Chong and Steve Wong for sharing their valuable insights on the progression of Chinese restaurants in America, their importance in Asian American communities, and their current status in the midst of the pandemic. Thank you to the Ethnic Studies Department and Gabrielle Ariola for your assistance in producing this podcast. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies Department, the Cal Alumni Chinese Chapter, and of course, Professor Harvey Dong and his Spring 2021 Asian American Studies 121 course. We hope that you enjoyed exploring this aspect of Chinese American history with us. Thank you for listening.